thing you read in Slate says it's Bon Iver. It's yeah, it's Bon Iver, which is what I said. But it says it, it's, it's based bon off the French. Yeah. Um, but Google says it's Danish. Or that's what it detected, which, I mean, you know, the detection's not usually good. With their How do you say bony bear? According to Slate.com, bony bear, the name bony bear is based on the French bonny bear, meaning good winter, but it's not really French. <laughs> songwriter, singer, founding member Justin Vernon explained the name in an interview with Pitchfork. When I was living up north, I wrote a letter. Period. <laughs> that, that's kind of like a bony bear song. When I was living up north, I wrote a letter. <laughs> So uh, yeah, so someone asked me the other day why we don't start with a, with a, an official podcast opening, and why we we just start mid sentence. And I can hear my voice in somebody's thing. Meet yourself. Uh, so the I don't know. Like I've listened to, to too much like David Bowie, and and I like the Beatles after 1967, and I like postmodern poetry. You know that kind of stuff. So. I mean, we could do the, you know, hi, welcome to Thinking Religion 133, uh, holiday extravaganza. Make sure to uh, like us on, on iTunes and give us five stars, five stars, five stars. And if you need a good mattress, make sure you go to casper.com slash thinking religion and use the offer code thinking religion and you get free shipping and $50 off for the holidays. It's great. All right. Now on to the show. And which is, by that. the way, brought to you by audible.com. <laughs> Like and rate, like and rate. Um, I don't know. Like we've been doing this for a long time, and and, and it, to me, it feels like we finally hit that. That's I don't know that that spot in a relationship where we kind of both know what we need. In right. Bed. Well, you know, we we say a lot too um, that we're just kind of hitting record on conversations we're already having, and in a very real sense, that is what happens a lot of times um we are having conversations and then in the pre-show and then sam hits record and i realize that we're live and okay we might change the the direction of the conversation slightly but nonetheless right it's still um (laughs) right it is kind of um right giving you know maybe giving our listeners a a little bit of a kind of a voyeuristic um you know glimpse into our lives yeah exactly and, you know, we can figure out if listeners actually like this or, you know, how it comes across on the other end, because as listeners will know, I don't ever listen back to shows nope. um, because we have some on the show tonight. Yep. So we, we have a couple of guests and we're going to have some pop in a little bit later, too. But I guess we'll start with uh, with Lauren. Lauren, hello. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Do, do you want to say anything about yourself? I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> this my my, my uh, most favorite topic myself. Um, yeah, yeah. No, actually, it's not. Um, but but I can say a few words. Um, Lauren Ari Larkin, and I'm a priest in the Episcopal, Episcopal Church, and I teach high school religion and theology at a private Episcopal high school in the Grand State of Louisiana. And but you've not always been Episcopal. We talked about this, right? I was Catholic for um, a, a portion of my life until um, I was confirmed and I had met all the requirements of my agnostic family. Yeah. So so you, you went from Catholic to Episcopal, whereas I've gone from Southern Baptist to Catholic. So we, we're kind of somewhere along the way, we, we crossed each other's strange paths. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
All right. And and then we have another special guest, which I'm so excited about. And he, he's the king of gifts. And his name is Professor McMakin. Howdy. I got it right. See? <laughs> You're yes. close enough. Mc, McMacken. McMacken. Uh, okay. Uh, you said McMakin. <laughs> I thought it was Make. Like M-A-K-E. People get it wrong so often that I stopped, I stopped correcting people for the most part if they say McMakin. That's close enough. That's terrible. You should correct people. But how is that's this how, the first that's how time? That's came up with McBacon. Exactly. <laughs> McBacon. Now the whole thing's blowed up. No, you but should. How is, how is this the first time I've been on the show? I mean, I won the like Bible challenge or whatever it was, that bracket thing you guys did. Yeah. And I've been pestering you to come on here for months. And then finally it happens at Christmas time. Because you wrote a book. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> <laughs> well, that doesn't make sense because I have written no books. You write blog posts. <laughs> so, Fair enough. Yeah. With, with your... Yeah, with your uh, your your closed down Twitter account. But uh, so, <laughs> Professor, uh, this is going to take me a long time to do. Oh my gosh, it's not McMakin, it's McMacken. Yep, Macken. Like like uh, okay, I got it. McMacken. <laughs> right, just like that. Like like the Kraken. <laughs> right, like a Kraken, like the like the <laughs> mythical sea beast that features so prominently in the Pirates of the Caribbean films. <laughs> No, wait. Is it Kraken? And no, Kraken's in a in a uh, da, da, what's a Harry? What what? You've got the owl from Artemis. You lost me, man. Clash of the Titans. There's no Clash of the Titans. Oh, okay. Oh, I haven't the seen Kraken? that. I You've never seen Harry Clash Potter. of the Titans. I have not. Oh, you millennials! I am woefully undercultured. Lauren, you've seen Clash of the Titans. Uh, confession. No. Oh my God, Thomas! Clash of the Titans. No. You've not, oh my god! <laughs> you're all, you're on your own on this one, Sam. Okay, you all have homework. Go and watch the old classical, like from the 1980. I think it's 1981. Clash of the Titans. It's fan, you. You will love it. Sam, Dude, I'm, re- I'm really sorry to say, but I give homework. I don't receive homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're going to be on our show, you're gonna you're gonna have to, gonna have to watch <laughs> Clash of the Titans. That, that's a classic movie. But oh yes, it's McMacken like Kraken. Release the Kraken. Yeah, that's release the McCracken. <laughs> don't don't watch the new. Okay, you're, you're going to confuse yourself. It's like it's like Taylor Swift's Reputation versus 1989. Don't watch the new Clash of the Titans. It's terrible. It came out like two three years ago. You got to watch the the classic one. I forgot the guy's name. 2000, 2010 was the newest one. Oh, okay, I'm old. okay, so so I'm talking about the 1980 81 version. Uh, but the, the 2010 version has Sam Worthington and Liam Neeson and Ralph Fiennes in it. Oh no, no, I've watched it. And Liam Neeson does a good job as I think he's Zeus. But um, yeah, it's 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 a little it, it's it's almost like have y'all seen Wonder Woman yet? Yes. Nope. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Good movie. And you know, and the mythology part was kind of fun. That that's what that Clash of the Titans was trying to do. I'll say it like that. It never ceases to amaze me how you guys are able to have opinions on virtually everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sam is the the consummate. Well, so the thing, Sam is the consummate generalist, or uh, you know, if we were more cultured, we may call him a Renaissance man. Ah. Um, cause Sam has done everything, right? You've listened to the show long enough to know that, you know, he was in, um, marketing for a while and kind of ran stuff in the tech world. And then, 
taught robotics for a while and he's had this whole flirtation on again, off again with church. Um, so Sam's kind of done a little bit of everything. He wrote a book about ancient Assyrian art. So it's usually me just trying to catch up with Sam. Um, also, Sam is significantly older than me, so <laughs> he's got more life experience. That is true. That is true. Right. Yeah, J- just give yourself a few years, and can, you can get there. <laughs> you know, I, I still feel I still feel like I'm 18 in my head, right? So when when I talk about like our, our podcast beginning, like for me, this is this is you know the band I never had, and this is my chance to to put out art. I mean, actually. I, my high school band is on iTunes. I'm not going to tell you the name of it, but we had a Nirvana cover band and uh, it, it was awesome. And we, we, you know, released a, a, an album. It was terrible. But um, so uh, for me, like this is a piece of artwork and, and I take it seriously. Not to be all fourth wall again. People love it when right. we do that. So were you the, um, so did you get to recreate the, um, the cover art? For your Nirvana cover band, right? Naked in the pool. <laughs> that wasn't you, like sixteen-year-old Sam. Do we want to know the answer to that question? <laughs> but you notice the the uh, the pregnant silence there. <laughs> yeah, he may have left us too. Marianne may be coming into the show too. So um, <laughs> so we'll go on. So um. <clears throat> We are we are glad to have uh, both of you on here um, this week. It is just kind of a holiday extravaganza, as Sam said. Um, so I don't know. It, it feels a little early to um, talk about uh, your book, Travis, but we'll come back to that at some point. Um, we'll make sure that we mention a couple times that Travis wrote a book. Um, <laughs> it's really the only reason he wants to be on the show. So... Um, <clears throat> No, you know, you know, people listening uh, that have listened long enough know that we don't um, we don't hawk anything that we, you know, don't believe in. We're certainly not getting money for this. So, yeah, um, certainly not. Yeah, because Travis isn't either. Right. <laughs> Precisely. If you, if you know how the uh, the publishing market and particularly the academic publishing market works, then. Uh, yeah, there is there is no money really to be made there. When I was an undergraduate, I had a conversation about this with one of my advisors at the time, and uh, he explained to me that there is no money in book publishing. And the the analogy he used was, you might get enough money to take your wife out to a nice dinner. Uh, meanwhile, I'm still waiting to see that money. So uh, <laughs> even that, I think, was a little bit overblown. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean. So I, I've probably mentioned this before, but, you know, people that I know that have written good books and have sold quite a number of copies. I mean, I do know a few people that are, you know, in a different realm than than the rest of us would be. Um, but other people that are, you know, very successful by kind of general academic standards, you know, posting pictures of their royalty checks for like eight dollars and thirty two cents. <laughs> you're just um, yeah, you're not you're not making money. That'd be a major win, a check like that. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Yeah. So, so Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> we need another Christmas miracle. I know what I'll ask Santa for next year. Well, you know, Ma- Mariana runs a, uh, a, a publishing house, so we should we should have her in that conversation about royalties. Because she, she does a really funky thing that I've always yelled at her about where she kind of uses the iTunes model where it's like 70-30 split. And then after a certain number of books... Like basically, the author makes all the money up front. Then, after a certain number of, of books 
um, sold, then the uh, the the publishing house makes the money, you know, over time. But it, it but it's still like a, a split. And I'm like, why why are you doing it that way? Like, <laughs> you're not you're not making any money up front. Like the whole you, you know, you, you gotta you're paying for these things to be printed. And anyway, it's a uh, it, it's an interesting um, conundrum in that world, especially with academic printing and publishing because you know it, it's like you said <clears throat> back in the day uh you could rely on professors buying books or, or or you know universities publishing books for their libraries but even now with uh, the way the the economy around publishing has has worked so far in, in the last 10 years like even that's being really disrupted so you know it's you write a book for the reputation as an author. You don't really write a book to, to make money, you know, not that you ever did, but. And to get tenure. <laughs> right. It's like, uh, I read a dissertation. I have to write a book. Hmm. But yeah. As someone who's never written a book, all three of you are just making it sound so alluring. I mean, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> there's nothing fun about it. Editing side of things, there's nothing fun about it. Well, here's here's the thing. Um, you know, I think that you know, like a lot of people write about writing, um, and you know, I, I've read a decent amount of people that write about writing, and a lot of people uh, will say what kind of sounds cliche, right? You you write the book because it needs to be written. Um, and, and I think that that largely is it, uh, particularly from an academic standpoint. Well, one, I mean, yes, you're trying to get tenure because that's, you know, in, in a lot of places, um, that is a requirement for tenure, you know, a book and X number of articles or whatever, um, if you're an academic, but, you know, sometimes too, it's because there's, you know, something there, you know, there's a gap, um, in the scholarship or in the literature that you think needs to be addressed, and, and so you, you're going to do that. I mean, for, you know, for my dissertation that I'm working on very slowly revising into a book, um, that's kind of it for me is mainly just to get it out there because nothing like this was out there when I started working on my research topic. And it's something that I think should be out there. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not even in a, in a tenure earning academic position anymore, you know, just trying to get it out there just to get it out there. And of course, you know, it always makes your mom or your grandmother really proud. So have you guys ever read the, uh, the John Williams novel stoner? No. Have you ever come across that? My best friend's name is John Williams, but I don't think he wrote that. He is a stoner. (laughs) This is, this is a novel about, um, an undistinguished assistant professor of English at the University of Missouri back in the early 20th century. And it kind of chronicles his academic life and the ups and the downs and things. But <laughs> it's, it's got so, this, uh, so bleak. <laughs> it is. It is very bleak. Uh, but, um, they've got this, I found it very moving scene when he dies of cancer, um, oh, clutching, <laughs> clutching like the one book song. that he has published. <laughs> And this this book represents uh, his contribution to his field and really the all of the the time and the energy and the love that he poured into his subject matter. And I think it's just a great tribute to that angle that goes into publishing academic books. I mean, most of us do this because for one reason or another, stupid or a good reason, we uh, love the material and we love talking about it and we want to contribute to that conversation. So um, it's, it's definitely not a mercenary endeavor, but it can also be a very meaningful endeavor and also a very frustrating and isolating endeavor. But uh, you got to take the good with the bad, even if you're 
on your back porch dying of cancer clutching the one book you published. I don't know about you, but I mean, that's that's why my book on Assyrian art has, you know, zoomed to the top of the New York Times. Uh, that, that's <laughs> right. So, it, so Stephen King wrote this great book called On Writing about uh, writing books. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if you're listening, uh, you are, and you haven't read On Writing, like go, go pick it up. It's, it's everywhere. It's a great, great, short, easy book, but it, it's chock full of, of good little tidbits like this one. Amateurs sit and wait for inspiration. The rest of us just get up and go to work, which I love. You know, and it's it's kind of like when you're ABD and you don't wanna, you don't want to write your dissertation and you know you have to. Not that I've been there, but it, it's it's like that compulsion to say, okay, well, here's I just need to sit down and have a regimen and and write. Um, he also says writing isn't about making money, getting famous, getting dates, getting laid, sorry, or making friends. In the end, it's about enriching the lives of those who will read your work and enriching your own life as well. It's about getting up, getting well, getting over, getting happy. Okay. Get happy. Which is kind of what you're saying, Travis, which I, I think is awesome. Yeah. And, and I think King is exactly right. I mean, at this point I've published two single author works as well as an edited volume and not it, none of it has gotten me laid even one time. Yeah, I you know that's that's the problem with uh, with with writing these days. You know, it's hard to be Hemingway, but it's true. Yeah. Although, uh, never mind. Who's <laughs> that time at AARSBL? Uh, right with the door closed. We right with the door. <laughs> what what happens at AARSBL stays at AARSBL. Uh, right. Maybe maybe Trump will tweet that out. Um, yeah. So uh, it is a it is a fascinating topic to consider and and lauren you're right like it's it's always like that that last step for a lot of people i I know i mean in my work i i deal with a lot of people who have great ideas and they're trying to pitch something or they're trying to create something and especially with my our nonprofit clients and they're like so what do i need to do to to get to the next level you know i I don't want to be on oprah but how do i get on the the local morning tv show and i'm like write a book (laughs) <laughs> honestly like blog posts are great but put all those blog posts together into a book and publish a little book i've, I've just been trying to get on thinking religion <laughs> <laughs> and here you are i mean everybody's trying to arrive all right so mariana right? uh are you are you on are you are you okay okay so this uh, you you joined at, at a perfect time uh we've got travis lauren thomas and myself and we're talking about publishing and writing books and why we write books and i've i've uh, already use the Stephen King stuff that you and Elizabeth talk about on Minister of Mystic. Um, but it, it, you know, that, that, that sort of tension between, I want to write a book, but I'm not going to make any money at it. So what's, you know, is it worth it? That kind of a thing. Well, if you get reviewed by Sam and Thomas, yeah, of course it's worth it. <laughs> Just, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. how you get the Buzzfeed article, That's, right? There you go. You, you book the gig on Thinking Religion, and two days before that, you get a yeah, BuzzFeed article after. that uh, blows up two your book after. sales. Where was my BuzzFeed article, guys? Come on two now. Two days after, it's going to come. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other department. <laughs> that's, that's thinking marketing. We charge extra for that. <laughs> that's uh, floor three of the thinking.fm yes, group. <laughs> I'm giving you guys free content gold here. <laughs> You're getting exposure, man. <laughs> don't ever. All right, just like when you write for no, HuffPo. Don't ever write for HuffPo. Don't ever write for these places that say, I'm going to give you exposure. So Mariana is my partner, or Mariana and I are partners, I should say. And uh, we, uh, she, she also heads up Harrelson Press, which is, you know, her, her, her uh, proverbial 
baby there. I'm not, I'm not going to speak for you, Mariana, but we, we have this conversation often about exposure and people saying, because you, you, you blog a lot, just like Lauren, about you know very sensitive and, and timely topics. And you get lots of requests from people saying, hey, we, we can't pay you, but can we take your article and put it on our you know, mega blog and send you traffic and that'll get you, quote, exposure, right? Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I kind of decided early on is that people could repost what they wanted to repost, but I wasn't going to produce new content for places because I got to the point that I was trying to produce content for three or four different streams. And I was like, wait, I can't, I can't do this and like try to have a job at the same time. So I decided, yeah, you know, I'll make my website and my blog, my hub, and then people can take from that you know, as long as they attribute credit back. I haven't found yet that people just take from it, but I'm I'm not saying that doesn't happen as well. Sometimes it does. But, you know, in the in the world of publishing or academia or just in the religious context, there's so many people who are like, hey, I have this idea for a book. Can you give me an advice? I'm like, write it. That's that's really the best advice that I can give you is sit down and write the 80,000 to 100,000 words, because that's the hardest part. You know, I can't do anything for you if you don't have words on a page. (coughs) Thomas Whitley. (coughs) Yeah. I've got words. They're just not the words you want. (laughs) Yeah, no, I could, I could work with them though. You just, you just won't send them to me. Lauren, do you you find the same thing, Lauren, with your, with your blog posts? Um, I have a good relationship with, um, key life and they tend to, um, I'm supposedly a key author, which means I'm supposed to be contributing new content, but I don't have the time for that. So pretty much they just sort of pick off of my blog and refer it back to Lauren E. Larkin, um, dot com. And so that's, um, I absolutely despise Apple. I'm sorry. I get these log down. I get these log out notices. Um, as I'm doing things on my computer. So it's frustrating, but there's this, yeah, there's, it's, I think for me in, in terms of the, the publishing aspect of it is, um, I guess just an intimidation factor, but also to sort of just a general disgust for the, what seems to me to be a perpetuation of a fairly abusive system that seems to render authors just sort of like a, you know, a bunch of rats in a lab maze. Um, and I'm not sure if I, if I can, if I can stomach that. And I, I think I'm, you know, maybe shooting myself in the foot most likely. Um, but it's, it's just something that I'm not sure if I want to participate in the system as in perpetuating the system as much as what sometimes I step back and look at it and say, well, why, why, why are we, why are we encouraging this? Isn't there, is there another way to go about it? Um, so I think in terms of like publishing content, that's the thing that's gonna, that sort of hinders me, holds me back a little bit. Um, and, and to my own, um, uh, I guess writing demise to some extent um, because I've gotten, I've gotten offers from, you know, lay publishers for sure about writing some content and I just, I don't want to do it. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's something that Sam said to me. Uh, you know, I was what, 31 years old before he looked at me and he said, you don't, you know, you're 31. Like you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. And I was like, wait, what? I don't, that is that what being like a grown up means? That's great. But I think there is is something to be said about, you know, protecting your creative content. 
And also, yeah, absolutely. The publishing industry, no matter if it's religious, academic or mainstream is not there for the authors or for the content creators. Well, and, and, you know, if you think about the democratization of, of something like being a public intellectual, you know, like back in the day we had, you know, the David Brooks and the, the, uh, what was his name? The, the conservative guy, uh, Jeez. Not I think David that was Brooks, his you mean more conservative than David Brooks? <laughs> right. I love You're thinking David about, you're thinking about, <laughs> about Dude Hat? What's his name? Dude Hat or whatever? No, no. Uh, oh, uh, can we please uh, not talk about him? Anyway, anyway you know, know. The, the, like there was a thing. There, there was a, a public intellectual, you know, role. Like you, you could you could be that person. And I mean, you had to work hard, whatever. But um, now we're all that on Twitter. Yeah. You know, we all have our, our audiences. I, you know, thousands of people follow us. And we have a, 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 a collective mind share in some ways where we can put our, our thoughts and, and feelings out there. We don't have to write an opinion piece for the local paper or if we're really good, we get into the state paper. If we're really good, we get into the regional or the New York Times. Um, you know, we, we can all sort of publish that whether it, anyone sees it or not. It doesn't matter. But the same way with, with writing books now, like I could sit down and write a book about Carl Bart and – I mean, I, I can't because I, I know nothing. Yeah, I would advise against it. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing, John Snow. But yeah, and then you could sell three copies. No, well, that's what I'm saying. So, so a, as we've proliferated and and democratized all these platforms, that's wonderful because we can all participate. And I can sit here and watch TweetDeck and not have to ever turn on, you know, the evening news. Like I can't remember the last time I, I turned on our local news because I've got Twitter. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I, I went out and. and bought a Dan Brown novel, except for last night, uh, because I've got, <laughs> what do we have to do? Another? It's, it's like, it's like intellectual porn. <laughs> I know, it's so exactly. good. Yeah. I'm really excited. It was I a big sale. All. I had yeah. $5 off. Someone gave me a gift certificate. Anyway, um, you know, but, but, but I, it, we're, we're at this weird societal point to, to what you're saying, Mariana. So I, I think that, um, you know things like things like politics, things that that we 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 can't hop into, that we we want to chip away at. Like, I I want to I want to I want to drive down to Alabama and run for Senate because I think I could beat Doug Jones and Rory Moore. You know, <laughs> but I can't do that. I, but I but I can get on Twitter and, and and complain about it and write about it. Um, and and so you know everything becomes a spectator sport that you're participating in as well as we get into this AI VR VR world, and that's wonderful. But like last night when we had the stormtrooper in our kitchen, um, you know, the, these lines between what's real, what's not, what, how, you know, participatory nature, it's just ever changing. And how that reflects back on the printed word is, is really fascinating. But I, I think there's always going to be a niche there. It's just finding that niche, you know, and, and whether you're Dan Brown and writing Robert Langdon stories or, or you know, you're Stephen King and you're, you're existing in your, own, in your own little little universe or, or, or uh, Margaret Atwood, you know, and you've created this other thing. Um, I don't know. It's like... You mean you've written down a prophet? <laughs> She's a modern-day prophet, that's for sure. <laughs> but it, but it, you have to create something. I think something. the term you mean is prophetess. <laughs> I, I don't want to be normative here. Well, oh, but then that kind of genders it, right? <laughs> Drink. <laughs> but doesn't that gender it, right? That's Actuary why we don't actress. say... Um, Right, we don't say actor, actress, we just say yeah, actor you're, now. You're going to privilege the masculine form. It, thank you. Prophet mm. is not masculine, is it? Well, we can say mm. act. Yes. Um, act X. Hmm. 
I don't know. I mean, it's the problem of the English language, right? Is that we don't have any. Yeah, yeah sure. Blame language. the English language. How about taking some personal <laughs> <Right>. responsibility? <laughs> okay, Eric Trump. So, what, what should we call it? Should, should we say profit or profitus? Like no, seriously, day. I had people in seminary who called themselves. They, they, I said, "What do you want to do? Like, what with this call that you have? I want to be a prophetess." I was like, "I, me too. How do you get into that gig? I would uh, like to be a prophetess." I think that's a different well, genre of employment. <laughs> that's that's not. Yeah, that's a whole another conversation about the people that you went to seminary with. Yeah, the Thomas and I probably went to seminary with them too, and they're still there. You know, they were. Sorry, <laughs> took them a few years. Because, you know. Well, and then I, but then my question, yeah, this is um, a rabbit hole, no doubt. But then my question was too, like, how do you choose to be that? I thought a prophetess was, or a prophet was something that you were called to that you didn't really want to do. Like, mm, then you can just do it. I don't think yeah. any of the Old Testament prophets necessarily were like jumping up yeah. and down. That's what prophets. I'm saying, right? Yeah. 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 It's a calling. It's it's proclamation. Yeah, it's, it's but, like, but to to have somebody say, yeah, that's what I want to be. I'm, I'm like, um, what? Yeah. No, it's it's like Michael Scott being manager. I you know, like anyone... it's something that you're you're born for, and there's nothing you can do. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I think anyone like who that. gets in the pulpit every Sunday, or in my case, every eight, ninth Sunday, um, can be considered a prophetess. Sure. So, right. so it's proclamation. Should, should I say prophetess or prophet or actor or actress, as Mick Bacon was saying? Like, is there a like? Th- th- does that make it gendered or or or? I think anybody. I think anybody that you're calling a, a modern day prophet or prophetess is. Uh, I, I mean, if you're talking about Margaret Atwood, I would just call her brilliant. I mean, that just. No, no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. Like when, when I talk about Huldah or, or some, you know, someone in the Old Testament or, or Thecla, or whoever, uh, and I say prophet or, you know, uh, uh, um, gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on every single Hildebrand. Anyway, uh, uh, do I say prophet or prophetess? Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to be cynical sam i'm really really yeah, curious no, i think it's an inter- interesting question because if we take if we take a, a similar role uh, like deacon right in in the new testament for instance um we have you know women that are given the title of deacon in the masculine form uh and then later of course the church then uh comes up with this you know role of deaconess which is just for women it's clearly gendered they can only serve other women etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's why at least when you're talking about that it's kind of a big deal that the new testament uses the masculine form of deacon for this title right um and so if we're thinking about prophet prophetess particularly in the hebrew bible sense then we are thinking about a position that was often gendered already but then how do we translate that into um modern day i think that's a good well, question. And, and if an you look at one. you know the history of the you know ancient mediterranean but also the the ancient near east not to use that term as <laughs> pejoratively as well but it, it, there's a long line of of male female um and and eunuchs and transgendered probably people um you know sending back into right. egypt and, and samaria um and and I'm trying to think from the Assyrian point of view, they're all masculine. Like they're I don't I don't remember like a, a prophetess type word for for that function. But yeah, no, I'm, okay. So in in the modern context, well, so so yeah, like, so, what, what so I was that, 
that I encounter actually pretty frequently is that, you know, I, I tell people that I'm the pastor of a church or that I'm the preacher of the church, depending. And um, they'll say, oh, so you're like a woman preacher. And I'm like, I'm just a preacher. Nope. <laughs> the, pa- the, the preacheress. Pastress. Like we don't use it in that form. So, but people often add the gender if you're a woman and don't add the gender. And yes, I think Thomas is right that it has to do with the etymology of the actual word. That is probably, a, a you know, wherever we're getting this word from, it's in a masculine form. And we don't, in the English language, have the neuter form. But I think there is also something kind of subtextual about that too. Like, oh, you're a woman preacher. Oh, yeah. Right, like the lady right. author. You all saw that going around on Twitter last week. So before, in the education yeah. in the education yeah. world, you know, they instead of saying uh, a, a ch- you know an autistic child, you say a child with autism. It's called people first language, and I think that's what we need to move to is people first language. Like it doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your um, sexual identity, it doesn't matter your race or ethnicity. Like this is what we we call all children children. We call all preachers preachers, and then you identify later. Yeah, I mean that's that's how I've, I've always kind of thought about it. Like, but but Lauren, with, with you know with the Episcopal tradition or the Anglican tradition, we're Catholic. Um, I mean, you're you're not a priestess, like you're you're a priest, right? Yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely a priest, and I don't think we use deaconess either. Yeah, I don't think so. But I'm wondering, at least in our Western context, we tend to define ourselves by our jobs. And so the it would make sense that the job title, preacher, pastor, priest, would be in the masculine, considering that historically those roles have been run by the masculine. If you think about it, you ask someone, you go to a cocktail party, and you say, well, what do you do? And I say, I'm a doctor, right? So there's sort of that ontological statement, I am a doctor. Um, and I just wonder if maybe our, our the... the um, foundational roots of our Western mindset and culture come in and take over the language rather than the language sort of having its own ontological status. Yeah. So that's interesting. Doctor, teacher that has the same ending as preacher, pastor, pretty close. So why are we qualifying? You know, teacher was historically male too. Right. It's just one more instance in, of how uh, capitalism alienates us from our personhood and reduces us to the cog <laughs> in the machine that we are. That's where I was going. That's exactly. where I was going. Get out of here, Mark. <laughs> Finally. Co- we coincidentally, in German, here. there is a feminine form for pastor. Frerer is the uh, the masculine and Frerein is the uh, feminine. Just, you know, tidbit of information. Huh. That's true. Well, yeah, and then a lot of other languages have the masculine or feminine. So, like the uh, uh, American—I'm going to butcher this because I have not spoken German in a long time. But even talking about like an American, you have just the ending switches to be like I don't right. want to say I'm a lady American, um, but the the language itself would, and that's the same thing. And I, I I can't think of another language that doesn't do what, that. What we've got in English is basically what you get when you take a fully declined language like German and stick it with a half declined language like French and mesh them all together. You just get all kinds of yeah. fun inconsistencies yeah. like this. And then you get President Trump. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just mess, meshing, wor- mushing words together and, and pretending that it's uh, conveying something I'm watching all these uh, tweets. Uh, uh, not that I'm not listening to you all, but all these tweets of uh, people critiquing Roy Moore's horseback riding skills. 
<laughs> it's pretty funny. Twitter, Twitter's doing a good job on that. Anyway, uh, well, going back to your going back to the point that you were talking about content creating it, and how do you decide whether you're going to enter the stream as Lauren was talking about? You know, one of the things that I think now I don't feel like I can write anything because I'm going to be gendered and neutered, and 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 I don't know if I can. That's why you need a good editor, right? <laughs> Check your privilege, Sam. Check your privilege. I'll, I'll plug. I, I can edit things. Okay, there you go. Well, so one of the things um, that I recently had to deal with as a publisher is who's an expert? Because with the streams that we have and the platforms that we have in social media, you can really say anything you want about anything and pretend that you know something about something. And so I recently got a book who about uh, from somebody who has his PhD, but it's not in religion. And he was writing about religion in our current context in Protestant Christianity. And I, has this guy been on Fox no. News before? <laughs> Hun- honey, that, that was me. <laughs> also, this person is not currently on the show. Uh, on uh, this show. Okay. What, what field was the PhD? Another from? one. That's all. That's as specific as I'll be. Was, but was it a was it a cognate field like poli sci or history no, or something like that? Definitely not. So yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't humanities. No, and yeah. so there were some inconsistencies. There were some assumptions and generalizations that I just wasn't. Pub- I wasn't comfortable publishing because, you know, there's. Uh, social justice slant to our publishing arm that challenges and questions and and seeks to transform people's understandings of the reality that they see. And so I, I wrote, you know, this is really not something that we publish. You know, it's an expository text. We, um, you know, and it's really hard to be expository in in something that's not your field. I, I don't mean to be like that, but it's not your field. And, and you know, the 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 person who submitted it said it wasn't their field. And so I was um, shocked to find out that somebody else published it very quickly. And I was like, oh, good to know that we're going to send that into the world. And, and it makes me wonder, like, what qualifies expertise? Does expertise even matter? As someone with advanced degrees, I would like to think that, you know, what I have paid for and what I am paying for matters in, in some realm. There was something that I was reading recently that was talking about the elimination of the editor. Like when you, um, even just like speaking corporately, uh, not corporately as in like a group, but like corporations, uh, you would have a boss uh, dictate a letter to an, an assistant who would then edit it and type it out and send and make sure that all the language sounded right. But with the advancement of technology and our ability to communicate immediately, we've lost the internal need. Like we don't think we need anyone to kind of edit us. And so we do all become our own experts and how um, it's broken down the sort of the the role of the editor has become a little bit more obsolete because I can just, if I want to, why do I want, why do I need to write a book? Why would I want to go through that rigmarole when I can just pop on over to my blog and type exactly what I want, the way I want, errors and all, just free form, free thought. And so it's all dependent on, it's all like developed out of this um, ease of communication. I can get on Twitter and type exactly what I want. I don't have to be um, in, in the process of being um, examined and challenged and pushed back on. And that's that's a negative thing. Like in general, if you seen the, see, watch the trajectory of how this kind of plays out, it's the breakdown of communication, essentially, like in, in the grand scheme of things. But it was kind of fascinating to see um, the role of editing sort of fall by the wayside. Very few people want to be edited. Yeah, I, th- I think we have, I mean, I, th- I think parallel with that, we do have a um, 
we are losing a, a sense of a need for expertise in general. Mm-hmm. And those of us in the humanities feel this, I think, rather acutely, um, where, you know, particularly with religion, right? Everybody just assumes they understand religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we obviously know that's not the case with most people. Um, not everybody assumes they know, you know, what an engineer does and can do it as good as them. Um, but, you know, people tend to assume that, uh, you know, if you're talking about religion or if you're talking about you know, literature or history, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know, Wikipedia says this, so that's fine. Like, I, that's all I need to know. Or, um, yeah, I can read the Bible and tell you what it means, even though I, you know, don't know any of the languages it was originally written in. I don't have any idea about what happened and, you know, what was going on in first century Jerusalem or whatever it is. Um, and I and I think that, so we have that in general. I, I certainly think that, that has been um, pushed on by, you uh, you know, some some people that are more conservative, particularly uh, more religiously conservative groups. I can remember uh, I used to work at a church uh, while I was doing my undergraduate. And when I was, you know, leaving and going to divinity school uh, where I did uh, a master of divinity and a master of arts in religion and um, had someone tell me like that I needed to be careful because, you know, you know how those places can be. Right. And, you know, was was kind of making the point that education and particularly maybe schools like this, which, by the way, is nowhere near being uh, a liberal school uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, right. So there, there is this kind of this uh, distrust of education among uh, many in, uh, um, you know, the religiously, particularly white evangelical conservative communities. And I think now and particularly in the past you know, couple of years, since those people have been uh, pushed into positions of power, we are seeing that be exacerbated. And I think that whether by design or um, just by, I don't, I wouldn't call it coincidence, but whether, you know, whether they were doing it intentionally or whether it was their subconscious acting out, I think that we're seeing the same thing with the graduate student tax, for instance, uh, with the, you know, the things that are kind of making it more and more difficult for people that aren't already wealthy to uh, pursue, you know, um, a college degree, let alone an advanced degree. And and so I think that all of this is kind of working in tandem. Mm. And and then, you know, we have this other piece that Sam has talked about, about the democratization of uh, the web and of social media platforms and the democratization of knowledge where everyone now can be an expert. And it, you know, it's interesting to me when I, you know, I watch this on Twitter happening, happening a lot where people will you know, they, they design tweets that you know they hope will get retweeted, which we all do this, right? But you know, some of the ones in particular that are interesting are, you know, I'm a scholar of X, and you know, this is not true, blah blah blah. Quote tweeting somebody else or something like that. So th- it's this kind of really interesting kind of performative aspect of authority and expertise, right? And that I'm going to tell you. Um, you know, my position and my role so that you'll know that I'm I'm an authority and you'll know that I'm an expert um, so that then my words will have more credence because, you know, Joe Schmo over there who doesn't tell you that he's an expert on that, he can say the exact same thing, but it's not going to be as interesting. So we have this kind of weird balance where we are, um, or this weird tension maybe, where um, expertise is continuously being um, aligned, but then more and more people are trying to claim the mantle of expert. And I, you know, there's a tension there and they probably are related in some way too. Yeah. And I'll say one of the frustrating things as, as someone who, 
did pursue an advanced degree, an MDiv, and as a female who that, you know, that's not something I grew up with, like females didn't pursue advanced degrees in religion, especially not in preaching and teaching. There, there are a ton of writers who are Christian women writers that are commentating on different things and teachings that are preacher's wives or, you know, just moms who are writing books. And I'm, you know, for me as someone who is a writer who has this advanced degree, like, how do I combat that? Because they have a ready audience, um, but their theology is really flawed. I've experienced that too, um, in a, in a, in a number of ways. And I, I think it's just the humanities in general that the ex the, 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 the non-existent of the expert, I run into high school students every day who, um, don't necessarily want to listen to me as someone who has these degrees in this rather subjective field. Um, and I wonder with specifically in regards to, um, sort of the, the, the separation between sort of the STEM, um, subjects, and then you have your humanities subjects that humanities becomes, you know, under the umbrella of like the subjective, I can encounter it in my own way and understand it. Um, I, I've had lengthy discussions with, um, uh, I, I hate using the term lay people because it sort of creates this hierarchy, but in, in terms of being a priest, that's what my congregants are. Um, but just, you know, well, let me, let me, let me talk to you about some of the things that are going on in the original language. Um, let me help you with some of the stuff that I understand doctrinally or theologically speaking. And it's sort of like, don't, you know, don't, don't get your, um, your, your, your rigid, um, institutionalized knowledge, um, on my free spiritualized reading of the text. Um, but there does seem to be this, it sort of seems to be a fallout from the hyper emphasis in, uh, specifically our culture. Um, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with other cultures in terms of the emphasis on STEM on those four major topics at the expense of the humanities. Um, and now they're starting to see, I think there's been, uh, enough evidence now that, um, without the countering humanities, portion of education that we're losing the capabilities of like critical thinking and all that. Um, but that there's, there's, there's still this respect for anyone in the STEM, um, world for experts. Um, you know, my husband's a civil engineer, you know, I'm not going to challenge whether or not he graded the road, right. Um, or the water flow on the road into the ditch. Like it's, I'm just, I just kind of default to, um, his knowledge on that. But at the same time, uh, we could have vigorous uh, conversations about scripture or theology based off of subjective principles. Um, and so there just seems to be this breakdown just in what we're emphasizing with our children as they're going through school. And then also to um, what we're, um, I guess, realizing as deficits that are, are we're, we're intellectually malnourished. And so um, it, I don't know. I, I'm not even sure if that's necessarily 100% connected to what we're talking about. But, um, um, but anyway, just an interesting insight. Um, being in the high school, I, I see it all over the place. I when I talk about concepts of uh, theology and religion, or you know, creation or evolution, and I bring in science and faith, and you know, there's just this always. Well, I don't believe in God because I can't prove God exists, and so I sort of feel like that's a breakdown of like critical thinking um, to, to some extent. I and mean, I'm simplifying the language, but um, you, you, I encounter it a lot in um, at, at, at my level, and I'm sure to. Some some extent, Travis may encounter it at the 
college level too. Yeah, and and even in our in our public conversations, you know, whether it's Twitter or if you're watching MSNBC or you're watching Fox News or you're watching CNN or or you're watching Al Jazeera or Breitbart, whatever, you know, Alex Jones, like there's always um, kind of a hidden context of what's going on. So when I watch MSNBC in the morning, it's like, well, you know, I kind of know what I'm getting into here, but I'm not watching this objectively, (laughs) you know, like there's an entertainment factor mixed, mixed with a perception factor of where that's coming from. But when I, you know, engage with someone on Twitter or when I engage with someone in a church and Sunday school, and we have a conversation about whether, you know, there was an actual arc, you know, whatever, that, that my seven-year-old daughter can, you know, we're, we're doing a puzzle <laughs> this past weekend and, and she's, uh, it's it's of the arc and it's kind of a, a funny tongue-in-cheek arc. Like there's a, a, a heck no, we won't go thing uh, that the unicorns are wearing and there's a big stop sign that uh, uh, Ham is, is holding up in front of the dinosaurs as they're trying to get on the arc. And, and uh, Mariana's family <laughs> gave that to us. I, I love it because they're pretty conservative. But uh, it, and so we had this great conversation about arcs. And I'm, I'm talking about Utnapish team and, and the Epic of Gilgamesh and the, the, the two flood stories and the Bible. And, you know, her little brain is probably like, OK, dad, whatever. But uh, she she was interacting and she and she got that. But I can take all that accumulated knowledge and my degrees. I mean, I'm not a Ph.D., but, you know got my ordination certificate hanging over me right now, literally. And, uh, you know, I can, I can talk with someone and say, well, you know, let's work through this. And it's like, well, no, sorry. That's what I believe. And, and that just kind of shuts it down or, well, yeah, Roy Morris, he's a pedophile, but you know what? Prove it. And we live in this era. I think you mean God (laughs) can use everybody. We're all flawed. Your mom's flawed. We live in this era of, 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 you know, prove it. You know, like, oh, oh, you think we came from monkeys? You think we came from yeah, monkeys, yeah. Harrelson? Like, really? Like, no, come on, pr- prove it. Show, show me the missing link. I watched, I watched a history show episode. I think, you, where I think you, we don't know where aliens. we came from. Ancient aliens. I mean, have you seen ancient aliens? Yeah. Have you seen them? Like, I, I mean, gosh, those things down in in Ecuador. I mean, how did they get there? Magnets. How do they work? I feel like, I feel like we need to do a whole show on. Like how bad the History Channel is, <laughs> right? Am I the only one who thinks that? Like some of their content is Vikings is great, fantastic, yeah. right? Vikings is really good. Vikings is great. Like funny the Jesus stuff where they're trying to do real history <laughs> is often re- I know really bad. No, that was CNN. Fun at our friend of the show. <laughs> when even like the the stuff that they do on religion, <laughs> the stuff they do on religion, where I'm like, oh, I know seventy five percent of the scholars on here. You can tell yeah. how it's edited. Like, oh, that's not really what they said. Like you're trying to make a completely different point because you didn't think their point was. Anytime your your Matt Tabor is on a National Geographic channel, I I just, you know, I just just went because he's a great scholar. But then they find out that the (laughs) rock is older. Dun dun dun. Um, Right. Yeah. So you know, we we live in this era of intentional dumbing down. Like I mean, like you're saying, Lauren and and Mariana, and and thank goodness we have we have people like like Professor McMacken. I'm never going to get over that. You know, the the thing that I'm trying to wrap my mind around at the moment is how on earth you have time to watch so much History Channel. These websites aren't going to build themselves. <laughs> yeah, you. you I've got to. an iPad right here. <laughs> class, like seventy five percent of your Sunday school class has watched the episode the night before and brings it in to your Sunday school lesson on 
you know, whatever you mean to talk about. And they say, well, didn't you see on Ancient Aliens last year? And, you know, after about three times, you're like, no, I didn't. And then you're like, well, I mean, I guess part of my sermon prep is watching Ancient Aliens now. I mean, it's a true story. How many times can you? After our uh, after our wedding, yeah, we we checked into our our uh, penthouse hotel room, not not <laughs> like the magazine. Oh, sorry. Wait, were you were you serious? There, there was a, no, it wasn't a story. No, uh, so <laughs> we, we we checked into our our, our hotel room, and we, we have table. after we had visited Thomas and Trinity. Remember? Oh yeah, because you were drunk and you needed food, so we. <laughs> True. But we don't have to finish talking about <laughs> and the, you know, no, the whole no. Let's not get there. So after Thomas and Trinity left, we, we're, we're laying there in bed. And what do we do? We, we turn on Ancient Aliens and we watch, we binge watch Ancient Aliens. It was the first time we'd ever seen it. We we're like, this is a great show. Because we didn't have cable. <laughs> so that was our honeymoon. It was fantastic. Yeah. I'll never forget that. I just, I just want to be clear that life, as right? a professor I, in the in a school of humanities, I do not endorse ancient <laughs> aliens as a as a source of reliable. But information. how did they get the the stone in in Ecuador at four thousand feet? I mean, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I it I, I'm not I'm not going to say it's dumbing down because we have access to more information than ever, and it's wonderful. We take more pictures every hour than we took from the invention of photography up until nineteen. 19- 97 or something like that that's insane and most of those are of food Wait. or or genitals but yes yeah and, and, a lot of food and it's fantastic that we we have this access to information <laughs> and we're able to share that maybe not the the food ones yes but it, it, the idea that that enables people to say well i've seen enough of this and i i've i've read some tweets i saw, I saw this on facebook or I heard about this on this this other stream of information because back in the day you would say, "Well, a friend told me this," and then the the person who actually knew what they were talking about, who spent time in school, could say, "Really? Like you're going to base your argument on what a friend told you?" But now, when you know there's a professor on TV or or a Breitbart article or or an MSNBC piece saying, "Well, this is what you should think," that gives a little bit of authority to you know your your particular worldview, and I. I, I do watch Alex. I, I do watch Alex actually, Jones. I, I pay oh, five bucks a month. Um, I hate to admit this. I pay five bucks a month just to be able to tune into the live stream, and I dip into it every now and then just to see what's going on. And it's there's some, I'm pardon the French, crazy batshit stuff going on. Sam, and if, if you want to pay me five dollars a month instead, you'd be welcome to just call me up <laughs> and I'll, t- I'll tell you whatever I'm thinking about at the time, <laughs> and I guarantee it will be more beneficial to you. <laughs> than what you're currently feeding. Oh, it's, it's maddening. Oh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. It, it, it really is maddening, but I, I feel like... Oh, so you're paying to, to get, to get angry. Is what you're, you're paying to increase the stress on your cardiovascular system and perhaps even take years off your life. You're paying... What I, what I haven't told you, what I haven't told you all is that I am Opus Dei. And no, a lot I, makes I, sense I'm now. Wearing, I'm wearing a belt <laughs> around my leg that's full of nails. You know, I flog myself every night. Or Marianne, it right. for me. <laughs> yeah, with the Shelleys. Yeah, so it's so it's like um, I'll let that sit for a second. Um, so it's like it's like Trump, right? I knew in, you in, the, in the great Glenn Thrush and Maggie Haberman profile of Trump in the Times, where they talk about like how he hate watches CNN. 
Well, but, right, but that's there, what you're doing. there and, is and, something to be said about the fact that as someone who's in parish ministry, you know, you can't walk into a congregation and be, you know, relatively sure of the theology or theologies that they're walking in with. Like you have to comb through everything that's going around and be like, oh, this is what's going to be on my congregants' minds because this is what they've seen on Facebook or this is what they've reposted or this is what they believe that is completely false. And so, you know, as someone who's in parish ministry, it's like that disconnect between I never learned in seminary that, you know, I was supposed to watch ancient aliens because that's what my congregation was going to watch. And I was going to have to actually dissect that and talk about, you know, how do we decide who's an expert on this? But that's where we are. You know, people believe a lot of stuff that are ads that are produced by bots that are not even a real person. So how on earth are we going to get them to believe in something that, you know, we believe is the divine incarnate here? Mm -hmm. I guess we're going to have to have a history show. Y'all in? <laughs> I was going to let you answer that pregnant, pregnant pause. <laughs> like, well, I mean, do we need any, like, are we I'm, I'm just Snapchatting Thomas. Or? I don't know what, what you're talking about now. <sighs> yeah. I mean, but in, in our, in our Baptist tradition, I think it's even worse in some ways because anybody can be a preacher. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I, right. I went to seminary and divinity school with a well, lot of people. Well, unless you're a woman. Well, or your LGBTQ, or you know, <laughs> I mean, anyone is white males because that's the only anyone. Jeez, <laughs> that's the only people that we that's ordain and call at age eighteen because we can see God in them. No, I'm, I'm picking up on a lot of problematic mental habits out of you tonight, Sam. I mean, it's first it was that whole prophet prophetess <laughs> business, and now the assumption. That, what I don't know. I'm just I don't, and you you've mentioned Breitbart multiple times. I'm just having you know. <laughs> A little cognitive dissonance here. I, I I am not a liberal Democrat. I will say it that way. <laughs> you know what really grinds my gears? No. <laughs> <laughs> People um, who say, you know what grinds yeah, my gears? Yeah. I, uh, so I'm, I'm trying to walk it back here a little bit. Trying to... Circle, circle back around as you do, which is a terrible saying. Don't, don't say that. Yeah. So um, what? I mean, what hope do we have, right? So we know that the church is declining. We know membership is declining. We know that there are really talented people who have PhDs or who have MDivs and ordination who can't find jobs in churches or can't find uh, positions as professors of religion who could help us with this problem. So, like, what are we going to do? Anybody? Bueller, Bueller. I, I was told. I was, told by, I was told by three churches that I had too much education when I was back in my day of, of saying like, oh, I'm going to be a senior pastor or I'm going to be a pastor and uh, interviewed with, with um, a number of churches. But, but these three specifically, um, you know, use that or, or uh, I, I had too much experience. I'm like, what are you talking about? I've never been, <laughs> never been a senior pastor. Are, are you saying that? Like I, I don't know. I, I think we're at a we're at a weird inflection point with with all of that as far as people who practice religion and, and try to walk that line because 
you know, half half of the congregation wants the pastor who's going to preach in flannel and jeans and talk about, you know, Joel Osteen stuff. And the other half, you know, wants, uh, you know, smells and bells, if you will, even if they're Baptist. Like they want a little more higher churchy stuff where, you know, they, they you know, feel the presence of God in that way. Um, so I don't know. It, it, it's it's going to be a, definitely a period of reckoning here for mainline Protestantism, especially for the Calvinists, uh, over, over the next uh, two to three decades, if, if that much. I mean, I, I think in the next decade, we're going to see a radically different religious landscape in the United States, as, as all the Pew stuff points us to. You know, I wonder... Um... I wonder if that's something that Helmut Gullwitzer can help us with. Mm. Oh, wait, is that my cue? I was, I was trying to get there, but I, I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, yeah, that was, I, was, I, was throwing it, I was throwing it up there. Yeah, that was a softball for you. Because uh, we do actually appreciate expertise on this show. So Let's see here. I'm actually looking for a passage. <laughs> and I was already looking for it because there is one point at which Golvitzer takes up um, Bonhoeffer's reflections on religionless Christianity. And Golvitzer um, has a very particular take on what religious, religionless Christianity looks like and what he thinks Bonhoeffer means uh, about that. So Golvitzer says this in his book, um, The Rich Christians and Poor Lazarus which is one of his uh, shorter works that was actually translated into English. And it makes a really good starting point if you want um, uh, hardcore socialist, politically engaged Golvitzer, because it comes after he kind of, he, he goes through this in an interesting biological, biological, biographical uh, process where he likes socialism. He doesn't like socialism. He likes socialism again. Anyway, uh, this is a quote from Golvitzer. This is what Bonhoeffer, in my opinion, meant by his demand for a non-religious interpretation of Christian faith, to translate Christianity into political terms, to be in quest of love in structures. So for Golvitzer, um, the, the critical thing about the church is that you have this witness to God's love and people working to embody that love in society um, through social structures and social dynamics and things of that nature. And wherever you have that, um, when you're working from a dialectical theological perspective and in, in, a, in a critical sense, you have uh, the event of the church. So all of these particular social structures that have grown up over the last few hundreds of years of Protestantism and, and especially in the United States with the mainline denominations and so on, all of that is really secondary um, and non-essential to the church's mission, which is proclaiming and embodying the love of God. So that means we have to be nice to the ancient aliens? If the ancient aliens show up again, we just tell them about Jesus. <laughs> or Marx. Well, you know. <laughs> Obviously. <yeah. laughs> I, I have so said, before, said before, as you guys know on Twitter, that um, Marxism is something like an economic translation of the gospel. I, I do like that. That's a hell of a quote. I mean, that's... That, that's Why, thank you. So, yeah. So, so Goldwitzer, I'm going to say the way you say it, uh, just make Mackin. I'm never <laughs> going to get over that. So Goldwitzer. Uh, I actually didn't know that was your real name. I You thought it was until, McBacon? Absolutely, I did. I apologize. 
<laughs> Talking about critical literacy, no, I didn't I, I think not look up Professor McBain. <laughs> the actual name. I trusted so, the experts on thinking religion. Hey, we're, we're good with names. So, okay, with Golvitzer and and what he's trying to do, he he's really sort of pushing Bart and kind of that that mid twentieth century ideal that that. Bart and, and some of the others were, were had formulated, but it, but he's pushing that towards that Mar- Marxist area. Am I correct in saying that? In a certain sense, I mean, what happens? Um, I mean, Bart really has his key insight that spawns the dialectical theological movement at the end of the nineteen teens and moving into the nineteen twenties. Bart has that insight in part because he is deeply engaged in socialist politics in Canton, Argyll, in uh, Switzerland, where he's a pastor. And in his congregation, he had um, workers at the local textile, I believe, factories. And he also had the owners of the local factories. And he, uh, without reserve, took the side of labor and helped them agitate and help them organize. And at one point, even considered running for office uh, for the Socialist Party. Um, So he starts in the context of socialism there and Uh, As Golvitzer points out, part of what's going on when Bart makes his dogmatic turn in the 1920s and starts digging into the history of theology and and preparing to write the church dogmatics is Bart is looking for a better theoretical grounding for a truly liberating socialist praxis because he saw what happens uh, to religious socialism at World War One. I mean, they just rolled over to the Kaiser and supported the war effort. And the same thing happens again in the 20s uh, with the failed revolution that Rosa Luxemburg um, uh, castigated so strongly uh, the socialist leaders uh, for not supporting. And then also that spawned the Frankfurt School uh, of uh, critical theory. Um, So Bart is all in conversation with those developments and looking for uh, a theory to support what he thought would be actually true socialist practice. And so uh, he has this great quote from the period that says, um, oh, how's it go? Golvitzer quotes it multiple times. I'm pulling up another quote here. What, what's oh, gosh, uh, Golvitzer. What that to do with this quote? It's just this great quote from Bart to the effect that um, socialists can be Christians, but Christians must be socialists. Huh? Uh, so Bart is really in his whole theology pushing in that direction and the politics kind of fades into the background and part of what you have going on after the second world war, as you move into the cold war is he wants to be critical of things on both sides and, and not take a side between totalitarian communism, which is, you know, a perversion of socialism and the sort of neoliberal capitalism that develops in the West, which has its own totalitarian tendencies and is, uh, also, uh, problematic. And Bart doesn't want to criticize either one. So he kind of lets the politics slip into the background. But Golvitzer has no such uh, qualms and is out there fighting on the front lines at peace movements and in rallies and getting arrested and things of that nature. So he's really inheriting the um, street fighter, political street fighter acts uh, aspect of Bart's legacy. Yeah. And that's interesting given the context of where he is. And I mean, even like where we are and we, we talk about public theologians and um, you know, we, we, it's, it's a fine line for lots of people between 
being, you know, the, the preacher in the pulpit, but also being, you know, the freak in the, in the sheet. No, the, the preacher on the streets. <laughs> How does that go? <laughs> no, lady in the streets and a dude on the streets. I don't want to be normative in a, in a freaking, yeah. Jeez, we no. know what you mean, Sam. So, so a, a pastor in the pulpit and then, uh, you know, someone who is on the streets and, and, uh, you know, doing, doing, doing some, doing some justice. Doing some good. Right? Doing some good. So, uh, I mean, uh, but, but you would say Gold, you know, Goldwitzer definitely has things that, that modern, postmodern, whatever you want to call yourselves, Christians and, and people who are interested in religion should, should acknowledge and, and wrestle with, right? And in fact, I think he's absolutely um, critical for our moment in North America, especially among uh, Christians who are committed to the Western theological tradition and have been nurtured by it and like their Bibles and like Jesus, uh, you know, which are good things, but have a hard time um, making that intellectual shift away from uh, the, the American religious tradition fed by the two great awakenings of, you know, religion being a private matter. It's about my personal experience and, and so on. And thinking instead, no, it's really about how we organize our life together in the world. You know, it's about politics and that uh, our, our Christian belief should have something to say about that. Um, part of what gets us off to off on the wrong foot with this. I mean, have you all heard Jim Wallace's stuff? I, I believe it's Jim Wallace about America's original sin. Slavery is America's original sin. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that the the original yeah, heresy book, isn't it? that goes along with the American church's original sin is the doctrine of the church's spirituality. And you see this develop precisely as in that conversation whereby um, certain branches of American Christianity are trying to use theology in the Bible to justify slavery. And part of the argument that they make that wins uh, a very broad following, not just in the South, but kind of sets the terms for um, the relationship between Christianity and politics and Protestantism in the United States, is that um, the church should not be about politics, that it's about saving souls or one's personal religious experience and so on. And so you get this, this uh, whole approach that severs that vital connection between what we believe and how we organize our social lives. So I think it would Goldwitz, be Goldwitzer shows us a different way yeah. precisely by tapping into the same theological tradition and showing us that it has some rather remarkable consequences. So we, we probably need to do a, a whole show on kind of this question, like must Christians be socialists? Yeah, um, I, I really want to, which is, which is, I think would be interesting as a conversation I kind of got into with some people uh, this past weekend um, that are, uh, that go to the same church that I do, um, you know, kind of reading. Can I be a conservative Acts. socialist? Like, can I read Acts that way, Thomas? And or right, that's what I was gonna say. Reading Acts and kind of the way they read it was like, well, it obviously doesn't mean this. That and then just kind of like went on. I was like, well, hold on, let's like maybe we're kind of, you know, post nineteen uh, eighties. You know, those godless commies. We're kind of predisposed against you know communism, socialism, whatever it is. So I think that would be an interesting um, conversation to to have on the show and to have uh travis back on for that so we'll try to plan that at what in like another year and a half two years you think that's <laughs> um, let's try to get it in before that yeah 